to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom and priests to God his Father, to him the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Word of God, guiding our meditation this evening, is found in Romans chapter 2, verse 4b. The purpose of God's kindness is to lead you to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what is the purpose of religion? Chances are good that you have at some point in your life come across someone who would answer that with something like, religion? Religion is all about trying to get people to behave a certain way and then make them feel guilty about it if they don't. It's a pretty common way of thinking about religion because it is also quite a convenient way to dismiss all of it because no one likes the idea of being told what to do and no one wants to feel guilty about anything. But is the criticism true at all? If we approach the question from a sociological point of view, it has some merit. Whether you're looking at Buddhism or Islam, Mormonism or Judaism, the Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientology, you can't escape the evidence that those religions expect their adherents to live according to their rules or principles. And while each religion has different teachings about what the consequences are for not conforming, it's very clear that if you take your religion seriously, you're going to have deep regrets, perhaps also deep fear, when you are made aware of your failures. But if the criticism is applied to religion in general, religion as a class, well, then it has to be true. Well, to be true, it has to be true for every religion. So what about ours? What about Christianity. Can we say that it's all about getting people to behave a certain way and then make them feel guilty when they don't? Many, even many self-professed Christians, will say that that's true. And um, for far too many, that actually has been their experience. You, you can probably supply the name of one or more denominations quite readily for, for the expression, blank guilt. Christianity does have rules for behavior. Christians are expected to follow them, and there are frightful consequences for disobedience. But to focus on those things as though they are the purpose of our faith completely misses the point. The purpose of the Christian religion is neither to instill fear nor to require conformity. Its purpose, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation and from Eden to Jerusalem, is restoration. God has revealed Himself and His will to us, which He was under no obligation to do. He revealed it so that sinners lost and drowning in their guilt, might once again become what He intended and created them to be, His children, living in His home in eternal love and joy. And this is why 
If we are looking for a a symbol to represent the Christian faith, the Ten Commandments are not where we turn. Instead, we look to the cross of Christ. Because that is where God's purpose came to its fruition. His plan was fulfilled there. A plan thousands of years in the making. A plan to remove all of mankind's guilt and replace it with true and perfect righteousness so that every man, woman, and child might come to Him and claim a place in His family through faith. Which means that our trust in the culmination of that plan and trust in the One who brought His mission to completion is what gives us our identity as Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father, as brothers and sisters to Jesus and to each other. We are known by Christ's passion. What He did and endured has a direct and vital connection to everything that we are and do as the family of God. Which brings us back to the whole matter of behavior and guilt. When we say that such things are not the purpose of Christianity, that's not to say that they have no role or or make no difference in our lives as Christians. Instead, the passion of our Lord Jesus, which we focus on in this season of Lent, moves us to look at our behavior and deal with our guilt in a way that no other religion does or could. Because what we see in Christ's suffering and death is not an angry, vengeful God lashing out with terrifying power at those who have dared to offend Him. What we see is a merciful God who, rather than give us sinners what we deserve, gave His own Son the righteous punishment we deserved and gave gave us His Son's own righteousness. What we see is a patient God who waited until the time was right to destroy sin's power rather than destroy all sinners. What we see is a God of grace who loved us so much that all three persons of the Trinity worked together to work our salvation even though it cost the life of God the Son. What we see is a faithful God who keeps every promise He has ever made, especially the one to send us a Savior to deliver us from sin, death, and the devil, and to raise us to eternal life just as He raised Jesus on the third day. What we see of God in Christ's passion is kindness. And that kindness leads us to repentance. If he had known the Lord only as a a vengeful, tyrannical disciplinarian, would the tax collector in today's gospel have dared to pray without offering any works or self-justification, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only because he knew of the Lord's mercy, even if he could never felt he could never claim it for his own, only then Was he able to lay bare his heart, admit his guilt and utter unworthiness, 
and plead for grace in place of judgment. And that faith in the God of love and mercy was rewarded as it always is. His sin was forgiven and his guilt was removed. He went home justified by the very judge he had sinned against. Or consider the parable commonly known called the prodigal son. It is really better titled the two lost sons because Jesus tells it in order to contrast the two different ways that people see the father and their own sin. The first son seems to be the most lost. As the youngest, he knows he will not receive the majority of his father's estate when he dies or get to run it. And he becomes tired of waiting. Tired of waiting even for his smaller portion. So he does the unthinkable. He asks his father to give him his share now, before he's dead, so that he can go off and live on his own as he wants. Amazingly, the father does it. He gives him his inheritance, and the son does what everyone expects. He goes off and spends his money with wild abandon until it is all gone and he is friendless and penniless. Things get so bad for him that he considers stealing the food of the pigs he's been hired to feed. He realizes what a fool he has been, and he makes a plan. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread and I am dying from hunger? I will get up, go to my father and tell him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. How can he dare to make such a plan? After all he had done... The offense he had caused, how can he dare? It is not just desperation that leads him to do something unwise or unthinkable. It is instead confidence. Confidence in his father's kindness. He does not plan to ask for restoration. He dares only ask for mercy. But when he returns and confesses his sin and unworthiness to his father, it is restoration he receives. Because the father who loves him wants nothing more. The older son, though, wants much less. He wants his brother to suffer for what he has done and to remain cast out and unredeemed. When the father comes to plead with him to, to come and join the celebration they're having, the older son refuses, unable to understand how this could be right. Because when he, what he sees when he looks at their relationship with their father is, is not kindness and mercy, but duty and reward and guilt for failure. The older son will not confess his own pettiness or jealousy or resentment or his hatred or desire for vengeance because he thinks only in terms of power and obligation and guilt. The parable sadly ends with the son who had been lost, found again and restored to his father's family and home and the son who had never strayed 
lost and divided from both, unreconciled. But it is not hard to see how that happens. If your religion is not one of grace, repentance is not much of an option. Because confession exposes you to fearful consequences, and and without the confidence of restoration to come, the the change of mind and behavior that is part of true repentance is, well, it's hardly attractive. Instead, a religion based on obligation, power, and fear leads one to either hopeless despair when confronted with one's failures, or an arrogant self-righteousness that declares oneself right with one's God and right with the world regardless of the reality. It can even lead to a certain kind of licentiousness, of thinking that, that you can do whatever you want so long as you don't get caught or so long as you offer the appropriate things to, to stave off divine wrath and punishment. This is even true with those who know the true God and should know better. If the only thing we were aware of was God's power, rules, and wrath, it would actually be easy for us, too, to think that that as long as we escape His attention and punishment, everything's okay. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness. When they first came to Mount Sinai, the Lord came down. And they witnessed the fire and cloud, and smoke, and thunder on the mountain. And they were terrified. So terrified that they pleaded with Moses, don't let the Lord speak to us anymore. Have Him talk to us through you. So they knew. They knew exactly who they were dealing with in the Lord. But what happened? When Moses was away too long up on the mountain, and many other times over the next 40 years, when they felt that God wasn't looking, they rebelled with idolatry, with blasphemy and brazen immorality because they thought they would get away with it. He must not have been paying attention. Spoiler alert, he was paying attention. and They did not get away with it. But many of them only changed their behavior when they saw others dying for their disobedience. It was not true repentance born of sorrow that they had sinned against the God who had loved them so dearly and and so well and had done so much for them. But Mount Sinai is not what God wants us to look to, to know and remember Him. There is a better symbol and demonstration. And the cross... Christ's passion towers over everything else that we know about the Lord because that is the thing that He wants us to see, to look at, to perceive, to trust, to hold on to. And the cross, what we see on Calvary, is not an exhibition of vengeance or power to punishment, but of His love and mercy for sinners. And when we see that, when we meditate on that, when we consider that, when we look at all that Jesus endured and all that He did for us in our place to save us, 
We cannot and will not be moved to arrogance or rebellion, and certainly not to despair. We know what it all means. We know why He did it, and we know how much He loves us. So instead, we look at ourselves and what in and of us sent Him to that cross to die, our sin and our guilt, our unworthiness, and we readily, quickly, unreservedly, as we did earlier today, confess our guilt before Him and plead for His forgiveness. We plead knowing that He will give it because we know our Father's kindness. And He does. He does forgive. He does restore us. And we do, through His power, change our hearts and our minds and our words and our actions because as forgiven children, we want nothing more than to live lives that please Him and that align more and more with His perfect will. Like the tax collector and like the prodigal son, like David in our opening psalm, we confess our unworthiness and we ask not for what we deserve, but ask for mercy. And our Father, who is full of kindness and love for us, gives us all we ask for and more, so much more. The cross, Christ's passion, demonstrates without doubt that our repentance will always be met with restoration. And that makes us what we are. Not just on Ash Wednesday, but every day, all through our lives, we are God's penitent children. Amen. May the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.